it is a, I, I trust it is a Merry Christmas. Uh, not because our circumstances are what we want them to be, but because of what Jesus has done for us. And if, if you're not really in the Christmas spirit, and maybe it doesn't feel like Christmas, I, I feel like I hear that more and more every year. It's, just, it's not the same for one reason or another, but Christ is the same. Uh, and so we have a reason to celebrate, we have a reason to worship, and I'm so thankful that we get to open God's Word together uh, to consider uh, what Jesus has done for us. And so I would like to invite you, uh, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, to open uh, to Matthew chapter 1. And if you don't have a Bible, you can grab the one that's in that uh, rack right in front of you, and you can turn to page 807. Page 807 in that Bible is where you will find our passage, Matthew chapter 1 this morning. And, and if you are a guest with us, uh, we want you to know right from the beginning uh, that we believe that this book that we are opening, it, the Bible, is the inspired word of God. We believe it is inerrant in the original manuscripts and then sovereignly preserved for us through the generations so that through the reading of this book and, and the illumination of his spirit, we believe that we can know God. Uh, we can love him, we can follow him, we can worship him, and we believe so much in the sufficiency of Scripture that we don't think that what I'm about to say today matters. It does not matter at all unless it agrees with what God has said in his word. We want to collectively be a church that believes it doesn't really matter what I think. What matters is what the Bible says, so what the Bible says needs to become what we think. And just a warning, if you come to the conclusion that the Bible is the Word of God, that has dramatic implications for the rest of your life. And so I don't expect you necessarily to take my word for it. Maybe you're here today with family, and you're not sure what you believe. You're not sure what you believe about the Bible. And, and I think that you have to come to that con conclusion for yourself. But we want you to know where we stand. Uh, this is why we want you to see God's Word for yourself today in the book of Matthew. Because I have no good news for you apart from the good news that's found in God's Word. And, and this Advent season, Season, well, we've been going through the series that we're calling Grace Appeared, uh, and our desire for the series is that we would see and celebrate the grace of God this Christmas. We want to see it. We want to celebrate the grace of God this Christmas because it's not the works of man that brings salvation. It's the grace of God that brings salvation. And, and God's grace is not a theoretical concept. It is, it is tangible. And and there was evidence of God's grace all throughout human history. Uh, there's evidence of God's grace, certainly in your life. But at Christmas, we celebrate the reality that grace physically appeared to us in the form of Jesus, God the Son, entering into the world. And because Jesus physically entered the world as a baby, that means that from a human perspective, the one who had eternally existed with God the Father and God the Spirit, the one that created the world and everything that we see in it, God the Son, Jesus, had earthly parents and grandparents and great-great-grandparents. And he, he had an earthly family line, and we're going to look at that more closely this morning. Uh, one, one thing that we say that we love about Christmas or many people tell me that they love about Christmas, is spending time with family. 
When someone asks you what you love about Christmas, maybe that's one of the things that you list. You just love, you just want to be with the family. Uh, moms, right, you don't care about getting presents. You just want your kids home, right? You just want to be with them, right? That's the greatest gift they could give you. We say things like that. And so and some, some of you, that's why you're here today. You're spending time with your family in this place. And, and this is what many people have decided that Christmas is all about. It's just all about family to them. Um, and, and maybe time with family is something that you always look forward to. Um, and, and maybe time with family is something that uh, reminds you how crazy your family is. Right? And if you're sitting next to that crazy, don't look at them right now. Just, just look at me. It's going to be okay, right? But, but like, you, you like, maybe you're like, oh my goodness, I forgot like how, how messed up this is or how crazy this is. And maybe you're not looking forward to tomorrow because you're worried about what's, what's going to be said or what's going to happen. Um, and, and maybe at some point in your life, you had the desire to learn more about your family. Like you wanted to know where you come from, right? And, and what's, what, what, what was going on before I was here? And, 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 and so uh, maybe you went to Ancestry.com, right? And, and, uh, and, and you were like, okay, what, what's, what's, go, what's going on here? What, what's, what, what does my family tree uh, look like? You actually want to know the name of your great-great-grandfather and, and, and the like. And, and if you've done that, you probably did so because you wanted to know more about your roots, um, and, and deep down, you were probably hoping that you would find out that there's some good people in your past, right? When, like, when you go looking for your family line, you're hoping that you find that there are some virtuous people, there's some people that did some good things, some things that you can be proud of. If you go to Ancestry.com, you're not wanting to find out that you come from a long line of bank robbers, right? Like that's, that's not the goal of paying for that subscription, right? Uh, Jesus didn't need Ancestry.com for multiple reasons. Uh, one of them is because his family lineage is well documented. And, and the Gospel of Matthew, the first book we have in the New Testament, begins with a genealogy of the family line that leads to Jesus. And I think these lists of names are ones that we likely skip when we're reading through uh, the Bible, because they don't really mean that much to us in our day and age. Uh, but today, I'm going to read all of them uh, from Matthew 1, 1 through 16. And uh, even though I practice, I'm probably not going to pronounce all these names correctly. And so I'm just going to apologize in advance if I butcher a name that you think I should get right. Um, I'm going to struggle through. I practiced, I promise. It might not help. Um, uh, I'm going to do my best uh, and we're going to read through all these names that lead up to Jesus, and then we're going to see what we can learn from this unlikely family tree, and I believe it will be helpful to you. So this is Matthew uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 1. This is how he begins. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob. And Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. I know that one. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. 
and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers. You couldn't pay Ancestry.com to go back this far, I don't think, by the way. (laughs) Okay, And, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Matin, and Matin, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom... Jesus, I know that one, was born, who is called Christ. We made it. We made it. We did it. All right. I've never had someone clap for me reading names. Thank you. Okay. You've never heard that on Christmas Eve before, have you? This is going to be great. Why does Matthew choose to begin his account of the life of Jesus like this? Have you thought about that? Why? What? That it's, not an inconsul, it's not an inconsequential decision. Uh, when, when you think about the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we have four of them. We have four men that sat down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, fully convinced about who Jesus is. And, and, their, and their purpose, their goal, was to share about the life of Jesus in such a way that others would also believe in Jesus for themselves. So they have to decide, how am I going to start this? How am I going to get people's attention in order to show them who Jesus really is? And so Mark decides to get right into it. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, son of God, and then he shares a prophecy of Isaiah about the ministry of John the Baptist. Luke begins by explaining to Theophilus that he undertook to compile an orderly account of Jesus' life. John, of course, begins with, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. Matthew begins with the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Why? Why? Uh, There are many potential answers to that question, uh, but this morning we're going to focus on three. Three truths that we should see revealed in this list of names that we call a genealogy. And, and I'm, I'm trusting that this list is going to mean a whole lot more to you than it ever has after this morning. There's so much here that, that I love. And, and, and the first truth that you need to know that, that Matthew's genealogy reveals is the kingship of Jesus. The, the kingship of Jesus. This was the purpose of Matthew's entire gospel, to reveal that Jesus is the promised king. Matthew sat down with that purpose in mind. I want people to know that Jesus is the promised king. He is the rightful heir to the throne of David. When Jesus was on earth, many of his teachings were revealing what the kingdom is like. 
And because Matthew's gospel was focused on the kingship of Jesus, he documented many of those accounts. And so, so much of Matthew is revealing what it looks like if, when God is in charge, because the kingdom of God is about the reign, the authority of God. And, but in order to have a kingdom, it helps to have a king. And in order for Jesus to be the king that Israel had been waiting for, to to reestablish the throne of David forever, he had to be born in the line of King David. That was a requirement. So Matthew is writing to this primarily Jewish audience who knew the prophecies about the Messiah given in the Old Testament, that the one who would come would would establish the throne of his father David forever. That's Isaiah a nine seven of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and hold it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So so Matthew, by connecting Jesus to David, right from the beginning of his gospel, is saying, This is the one we've been waiting for. What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? Matthew would answer, this, this is Christ the King. This is Christ the King. The long-expected one has come. Uh, This is how he summarizes the genealogy in verse 17. Matthew 1, 17 says this, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, And from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Why is Matthew emphasizing the number 14? If you want to take a deeper dive, here here you go. In the Hebrew language, letters were assigned numbers. And And the consonants in David's Hebrew name add up to the number 14. Add up to the number 14. So 14 is the number for David. So Matthew arranges his genealogy in groups of 14. From Abraham to David and from David to the deportation and from the deportation to Jesus. And and he skips a couple generations at times. If you were wondering that, is that all of the generations that go from Abraham to Jesus? The answer is no. Uh, They didn't intend to include every single name that was normal in constructing genealogies. His original audience probably knew some of the names that he skipped, even though we don't. And, And Matthew organized it in such a fashion to emphasize the number 14, because he wanted them to know this is the heir to the throne of David. This is the king. And, and so many Christmas songs emphasize the kingship of Jesus. We sang one this morning, peace on earth, goodwill to men from heaven's gracious king. But just because that language is normalized to us, that doesn't mean that we should ignore its significance. Because if you believe the claim of those Christmas songs, and if you believe the claim of Matthew, if you believe that Jesus is king, that means he deserves our submission and our allegiance. I I would contend that there is no bigger decision you could make than deciding whether you believe whether, whether Jesus is truly king. 
Do you believe that he's truly king? There's no better decision you can make this Christmas and every day than to submit to his authority as king in your life. Matthew's genealogy was intended to show the kingship of Jesus. It also neatly summarizes for us the history of Israel. A good way to organize Israel's history in your brain is with these three parts, from, from Abraham to the kings, from the kings to, the, to captivity or the deportation to Babylon, and from that captivity to Christ. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we looked at where this story begins with God's gracious covenant to Abraham. He promised to make a great nation out of Abraham's descendants, to give them land and to eventually bless all the nations of the earth through the line of Abraham. And the fulfillment of that promise included the Hebrews being in Egypt for 400 years before God dramatically rescued them, brought them to the promised land, established a nation where he would be their God and they would be his people. He wanted to be their ultimate authority. The nation of Israel wasn't intended to be built around a palace with a king. It was built around a temple where God's earthly presence dwelled. He didn't want them to have human kings like the other nations. God intended for them to be unique. But in their rebellion, Israel wanted to be like everyone else. They wanted to have kings like everyone else. And so that leads to the second section of this genealogy with the kings of Israel. Some who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but many more who did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And desiring power quickly led to the nation being divided into the northern and southern kingdom. And both Israel and Judah eventually succumbed to idolatry. And their spiritual fall led to their physical fall. Capped off with Judah falling captive to Babylon. That's what Matthew references here to begin the third section of this genealogy. And that encompasses over 580 years before we get to Christ. During which you have these prophets like Isaiah who foretold of a future restoration despite the captivity they were entering into. That there would be a future king who would come to redeem. Hope was not lost. And even in the time when God was silent... He was still preserving David's line. He was keeping his promises, not because his people were faithful, but because God is faithful. Not because his people deserved his blessing, but because God is gracious and he doesn't give us what we deserve. Which, which leads to the third, and from my perspective, the most significant truth that we find in this genealogy, which is this, the redemption of history. The redemption of history. Uh, did you notice as I, I was reading that long list of names uh, that there were some that weren't like the others? There were, there were some that sort of stick out like sore thumbs, especially if you're familiar with genealogies. And I would say they stick out intentionally so. Uh, because a genealogy is usually a father-son list. It's usually a father-son list. Uh, this man was the father of this man, who was the father of this man, who was the father of this man. That's, that's the way that they were. And so if you are focusing on the royal lineage of Jesus and going even beyond the kings, beyond David, and tracing him all the way back to Abraham, it makes sense that you would be listing especially the kings that were part of his family tree. But four times, 
Matthew briefly interrupts this flow of father to son to insert some moms into this genealogy. And he specifically chooses to insert Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba. And those names intentionally bring attention to some stories that are not ones you would expect to be brought up when you are announcing the arrival of the promised Messiah. I, I, just, I just want to warn you that uh, these are not all good tidings of great joy for all the people type stories that Matthew is bringing up here. These are some of the family embarrassments that you try to hide and to tell no one to mention again, especially not at Christmas time. Uh, the story of Judah and Tamar is in Genesis 38. And I promise you, it is not in a single book of Bible stories for kids. Not a single one. Not a single one. Because from a human perspective, what unfolds in Genesis 38 is a complete broken disaster. Um, the one-sentence version is that Tamar disguised herself as a prostitute and had a child with Judah, who was her father-in-law. Matthew, what are you doing? <laughs> What, what, like, why are you bringing this up now, right? This is about the birth of Jesus. Like, this is, this is about Jesus being king. Why are you bringing up the messy stuff? Why don't you just leave that in Genesis? And by the way, Judah was one of the sons of Leah, the wife of Jacob, that Jacob didn't even want to be his wife, right? And he loved Rachel, and his prized son was Joseph, who his brothers, including Judah, had hated so much that they sold him as a slave to Egypt. And so if you need to feel better about your family this weekend, read the book of Genesis. Like, you'll feel so much better. Like, if you have a really bad Christmas, just go home and you'll feel so much better. Read the book of Genesis. It's wild. It's crazy. It's a complete mess. And Matthew is not ignoring it. He's not shying away from it. He's like leaning in. He's like, let's talk about this. Let's bring this up right now. He's intentionally reminding his Jewish readers how bad it was. So in verse 2, he says, And Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. You know the brothers that hated their brother so much that they sold him into slavery. Remember that? Remember how our ancestors ended up in Egypt? Remember how bad that was? And then he goes on. And in verse 5, he says that Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Who was Rahab? Rahab was a Gentile. She was a Canaanite who lived in the land that God had promised to Israel. And, and by the way, she was also a prostitute. And, and, and you can read about her story in Joshua chapter 2. And, and she hid two of the Israelites who had come to spy out the land of Jericho uh, because she had heard the stories about God delivering Israel from Egypt. And she believed that he had given them this land, her land. So because of her faith, her hiding those spies from her own people, Rahab and her family were spared. And she wasn't just added to the nation of Israel. She became part of the line of Jesus. Rahab was the mother, or if generations were skipped at this point, she was at least the grandmother or great-grandmother of Boaz, who was the father of Obed by Ruth. We love the story of Ruth, don't we? We love Ruth. Uh, she has a book in the Old Testament named after her. Uh, she was dedicated to her mother-in-law, Naomi, even when it didn't seem like there was much in it for her. 
but, but Ruth, from a, from a human perspective, was not supposed to be part of this story. She wasn't supposed to be part of this one. And she wouldn't have been if her father-in-law didn't move from Bethlehem to Moab during a famine. And his sons married Moabite women. Ruth was one of those, which was very taboo. They weren't supposed to do that. All the men in Naomi's life die while they're in Moab, leaving Ruth as a widow. And she comes back to Bethlehem with a bitter mother-in-law, Naomi. And that is when eventually Boaz becomes the kinsman redeemer for their family. And Ruth gives birth to the grandfather of King David. A Moabite is the great-grandmother of King David. It's not supposed to be this way. And David, of course, is the father of Solomon. And Matthew doesn't say the name of Solomon's mom. Instead, he references Solomon's mom in a way that intentionally draws attention to a terrible story. David, verse 6, was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. We aren't supposed to talk about that story during the Christmas story. That's not, that's not supposed to be here, Matthew. King David was supposed to be at war, but instead he stayed back and he ends up committing adultery with Bathsheba, who was married to one of David's top military men, Uriah, and trying to cover up his sin led to more sin, which is what always happens when we try to cover up our sin. And, and he gives battle plans that ensures that Uriah is not going to survive so he can then take Bathsheba as his own wife. And David thought he was in the clear, but God knew. And God confronts him with his sin, and he repents, and God forgives him. Like, how? And, and later, he and Bathsheba would have a son named Solomon, who's in the line of Christ. And that's just four of the stories. That's just four represented in this list of names. And there's a lot more bad ones, Okay. Uh, we talked about Abraham and all of his failings earlier in this series. It includes kings that did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. It's a list of liars and unfaithful husbands and idolaters. Like, that's the summary of this family tree. This is a messy, this is a messy family. This is a messy trip to Ancestry.com, right? Where you find a bunch of things that you really wish weren't there. It is a messy family tree that leads to the one who came to save us from our mess. Because God's dealings are with real people, not ideal people. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? Because if God only dealt with ideal people, he wouldn't deal with me. And he probably wouldn't deal with you. He wouldn't deal with us. But God deals with real people, with complicated stories, as part of the brokenness that is this world, and he used all that messy stuff, stories that we're not even comfortable thinking about, to accomplish his purposes. In fact, this is one reason why I believe the Bible is true. Because if you were going to make up a story about the kingly lineage of the king of kings, I don't think it would be this messy. If you were just going to make this up, this is not what the story would look like. I mean, you ever have times when you're reading the Bible, right? And the events are so outrageous and so messed up that you can't believe you're still reading the Bible? You're like, how is this here? Like, why are we talking about this right now? What is, what is even going on? I promise you, Genesis 38 is one of those. How is this happening? Who would make that up? The Bible doesn't read like a fairy tale. 
It reads like real life. His broken people who desperately need redemption, which means that this story can include me, and this story can include you. And in a sense, it isn't surprising that the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to highlight these stories, because Matthew's story is a little messy as well. Before Jesus called him to be a disciple, Matthew was a tax collector. (laughs) People didn't like him. People didn't like tax collectors. Uh, He was viewed as a sellout to the Roman government and hated by the Jewish people. And Jesus comes to him and he says, follow me. And now Matthew, whose story has been redeemed, is writing about the one true king who came to redeem all of history. Jesus is a king whose family line contained moral outcasts. It's a family line that was ethnically diverse. I mean, how awesome is that? Like Matthew makes sure to point out the Canaanite and the Moabite that are part of the story. God was keeping his promise to Abraham that all the families, all the families of the earth would be blessed through him. Jesus was Jewish. He was the rightful heir to the throne of David. But on the night of his birth, the angels had good news of great joy for all, all the people. Not just for some of the people, not just for the good boys and girls that deserve something other than a lump of coal for San- from Santa, as if, as if you can deserve gifts. Okay, um, right? right? It's not just for the good boys and girls. Yes, have you been good this year? Of course I have. And the parents are like, mm, okay, right? <laughs> he didn't just come for the good boys and girls. He came for us. He came for us. This is the good news of great joy for all the liars and for the murderers and for the adulterers and the idolaters and for the poor and the oppressed, for those with an embarrassing family history or even for those who are the embarrassing family history. This was for ceremonially unclean shepherds. This is for Gentile magi in the east. This is for Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba. For unto you, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. God did not design this world broken. He didn't. God created this world with the intention that his creation would enjoy a perfect relationship with him as their creator. But the reason that we see brokenness all around us and our days aren't as merry and bright as we would like them to be is because rather than trusting God's good design for us, we have all sinned against him which separates us from a holy God. We have all done things our own way instead of trusting what God has said. But Jesus didn't come. Jesus didn't come from ideal people to ideal people because there are no ideal people. We have all sinned. Our lives are all messy. We all experience the brokenness of this world and long for things to be made right. And into that brokenness entered Jesus. God himself came to a world that he had made. He traded a heavenly throne for a place where animals feed because we needed a savior. We needed to be redeemed, brought back into a relationship with God that we could never even think about approaching on our own. So Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I should have lived. And then the king of kings did the unthinkable. Jesus died the death that we deserve to die. He paid the just punishment for the sins of his family tree 
paid for David's sin and Abraham's sin. He paid for the sins of my family tree and your family tree in his death on the cross. But that's not the end of the story. He rose from the dead. He conquered sin and the grave. He ascended into heaven, promising to return to establish his throne as king forever. And here's the invitation for everyone. Good tidings of great joy for all the people. You can have access to the eternal kingdom of God. If you come to the end of yourself and place your faith in the perfect life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection of Jesus, if you say, I believe that Jesus is king and I need him to be the king of my life, no matter what you've done, no matter your family story, no matter the shame, guilt, and regrets that you carry with you today, I want you to know that all of your sins can be forgiven. The righteousness of Jesus can be credited as your righteousness. You can become part of the eternal kingdom of God. And, and here's what I would submit. If you think about your story, and you think you're doing pretty good, and, and you would, if you were being honest today, and you would honestly say, you know, I don't really think I need a Savior then the story of Christmas is probably always going to be insignificant to you. But if you look at your life and you say, I know I need a Savior. I know I can't do it on my own. I know that something's missing. I know I can't be good enough. Then I have good news of great joy. That's for all the people. All the people. Because on a real day, in a real place, from a real messed up family, a Savior for all people, was born. And his name is Jesus. And I don't know what your family history is like. I, I don't know what sin, guilt, or shame you, you, you're dealing with as you sit here today. Maybe you don't think you need a Savior. Maybe you think you're so bad you can't be saved. But here is what Matthew chapter 1 is telling me. That if messed up people can lead to Jesus then messed up people can follow Jesus. If messed up people can lead to Jesus, then messed up people can follow Jesus. If Jesus can redeem these stories, feel free to read them sometime. They're crazy. If Jesus can reveal, can redeem these stories, that means he can redeem your story. He, he didn't come to say that we are great just the way we are. He came to transform us from the inside out if we would just place our faith in who he is instead of what we have done. That's the good news of Christmas. Amen, church? Let me, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you that the Bible does not read like a fairy tale. It doesn't, it doesn't read like these, these perfect, privileged people. It, it's a mess. We read it and we can't believe that you would use some of the people that you chose to use. But I pray that we would see your grace in this Christmas story. That it's not about what we deserve. It's not about what we've earned. It's not about coming from this perfect family. Because if messed up people lead to Jesus, messed up people can follow Jesus. And so I pray that you would open eyes today to see who Jesus truly is. The one who came into our brokenness to redeem us. To heal to transform from the inside out. You don't say that we're great the way we are, but you promise that you can transform who we are into the likeness of yourself. 
And I pray that if there's anyone here today that they've never accepted that gift of grace, they've never accepted the gift of Jesus, that today would be the day that they receive the greatest gift that they can ever receive, that they would receive your forgiveness, the righteousness of Jesus credited to their account, part of the eternal family of God, not because of what they have done, but because of their faith of what Jesus has done. So thank you, Jesus, for being our rescuer, for being our redeemer. Thank you for being our Emmanuel. God is with us, despite our sin and our failures. Uh, I, I, I just want to praise you today. In Jesus' name, amen.